A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. It's mentally yours from Ellen and Hi everyone and welcome to Mentally Yours, Metro.co.uk's weekly mental health podcast. I'm Yvette and I'm Ellen and this week we're talking to Hope Virgo. She's the author of Stand Tall Little Girl and a mental health advocate and the creator of Dump the Scales. We'll be chatting to her about all things anorexia, eating disorders and also her new campaign. So I am the author of Slant to Little Girl, which is a book which documents my recovery from anorexia. And I'm also a mental health campaigner. So I work across the country in schools, hospitals and with corporates um, to try and change understanding around mental health more widely. And then I work specifically with the government around eating disorder diagnosis um, and trying to make everyone realise that you don't have to be stick thin to have an eating disorder. You can be any size, any shape. And you've got a campaign which is Dump the Scales. Yeah. Explain why we need to dump the scales, basically. Um, So back in 2016, I relapsed. So I'd been out of hospital for eight years and pretty much managed my recovery from anorexia um, completely on my own with like support, obviously, from friends and family, but with no professional help. And in 2016, my grandma passed away and I became fixated on it being my fault that she died. I'd been for a run the morning that she died and hadn't run quite as fast as I I wanted to and I was left with all of this guilt and all of this grief and didn't really know how to process it and after kind of battling with that anorexic voice back in my head for about four or five months I was like I cannot live my life like this I need to do something about it so I referred myself to the Mental Health Trust in Southwest London and went for an appointment kind of three weeks later. But because my BMI wasn't underweight, there was no treatment available for me. And I left this appointment feeling like this really rubbish anorexic person, really hypocritical and spent like this four week period feeling really unhappy and really suicidal a lot of the time. And luckily for me, I ended up going on medication and kind of pulled it back with the support of friends and family. But a lot of people don't have that. And there's loads of people who every day get turned away from services because they're not underweight so they're not getting that support they need so then they either end their lives or they escalate with their eating so that they end up 
at that crisis point. Yeah, it sounds incredibly dangerous. It's you're ridiculous. Telling people you're not thin enough to get help. Yeah, because the way with anorexia as well, it's so competitive. So like, if you're told you're not thin enough, you're just going to try and get really skinny to prove a point. So it kind of plays into all of that insecurities of having the eating disorder in itself. Um, so the campaign is trying to change this um, and trying to make sure that the guidelines are implemented across the country, that there's a focus on things like early intervention, but also that there's a focus for GP training. So at the moment, GPs get two hours of training throughout their whole medical degree on eating disorders. And so there's like a huge lack of understanding. And whilst they really want to help, they don't really get it a lot of the time. So we're trying to enforce something around that too. And I imagine it's the worry that, oh, we might say the wrong thing. If you don't have the training to give you that confidence it's easy to worry, okay, I might do something wrong. So I'll yeah. just back away and back off. And I think that's quite often what happens is people just get really dismissive about it because they are too scared about triggering someone or saying yeah. something wrong. And I think there is that whole thing around triggering people. It's like when you go to the GP, they don't want to ask how your eating's going or if you feel suicidal because they're worried they'll give you a thought in your head. So I think it's about educating GPs so that they feel confident in asking those really direct questions. You mentioned earlier about um, the anorexic voice that's something that I've heard from other people who've had eating disorders. Would you mind explaining a bit more about that? Um, so to me, my anorexia was like having this best friend with me the whole time. So it was like having this constant dialogue going in my head with someone else telling me what I should be eating, what I shouldn't be eating, how much exercise I should be doing, um, and basically controlling every part of my life. When it started, it was quite quiet a lot of the time. But then over kind of a four-year period, it got really loud. And it is something that I do still have to manage. It's something that from time, to, like every now and again, I'll like look in the mirror and that anorexic voice will say really nasty things or I'll go out for dinner with friends and I might order like a pizza or something like a food that I find slightly harder to have. And that's when the voice will start to shout at me and be really, really difficult and really nasty. I think from people I've spoken to, a lot of people do see it as that voice in their head. And I think in recovery, it actually helps when you think about it like that, because it means that you can try and have that dialogue back with it where you can tell it to shut up and back off and not be part of your life. When did it start? speaking to you? Um, probably when I was about 13. So I started when I was kind of 12, 13, I was having a really difficult time at home um, and had a number of issues going on. And I started to skip meals kind of here and there as a bit of a coping mechanism. And when I did it, this voice started telling me that everything would be okay if I skipped an extra meal. And I'd kind of lie in bed in the evenings and listen to my parents arguing. And the voice would kind of distract me with thinking about calorie counting and telling me to exercise a little bit more. Um, so probably, yeah, around then. And it just kind of went from there, really. For you, was it about looking a certain way or weighing a particular amount? Because I think that's a common kind of misconception that eating disorders are all, all about I want to be skinny. Yeah, no, so for me, it wasn't like that at all. I have very distorted body image. Um, and even when I was in hospital and even now, I can't see myself the way that everybody else sees me. And so in that sense, there probably was a slight body image thing. But the reason I developed it was mainly because I didn't feel like I had control over things that were going on. And I really struggled with feeling any sort of emotions. Um, when I was 12, I had a lot of family stuff going on and I was also sexually abused. And kind of I didn't know how to process all of that guilt and stuff that comes with all of those things that are going on. And the anorexia just helped me switch off from everything. And I quite liked that, actually, which I think is why probably I relapsed a couple of years ago, because I wanted to switch off from the real world. Yeah, it's kind of like a not healthy coping mechanism. Yeah. I think that's where I think a lot of the un misunderstanding comes from, because people do think, no, oh, they just want to be thin. It's, yeah. You know, just normal, but gone to extremes. No, definitely. So what kind of tools have you sort of used since then to basically 
tell the voice to bugger off. Um, that's a very scientific <laughs> way of putting it. That's a good way of putting it. And sometimes it's quite literally like, I'm like, oh my God, shut up, leave me alone. Um, so the main ones I think are talking and shouting back. So I remember a couple of years ago on Christmas Day, I cooked Christmas dinner for my whole family um, in my flat, which was quite stressful in itself anyway, kind of trying to cook for seven people in this one bed flat. Um, but the next morning I woke up and went for a run and the voice was being really nasty. And I remember running around once with Common and like literally like shouting at myself being like shut up leave me alone like I can have a really good Christmas I can enjoy the food it's fine and I probably looked quite weird when I was doing it but it helped me to kind of vocalize how I was feeling um so I think that's a big one and then the other big one is just reminding myself that what's happening in my head isn't always my reality so like when I look in the mirror and the voice is really nasty to me I can remind myself that actually if I look at the evidence then the reality is whatever that voice is saying to me is not right. And I think it's taken me a very long time to get to that point where I feel comfortable doing that. But I think combining those two things with all my other coping mechanisms, it helps me to kind of stay strong and fight it constantly in my head. I think anorexia is one of those ones where people might have read a fair bit about it. They might have some sort of idea about it. But I think then if they were faced with a friend or a family member who was experiencing it, they wouldn't necessarily know how to deal with it or how to kind of get through to them. You've been through it sort of quite a lot by the sounds of it. If someone was at their worst point in terms of it, how could they support them? So I think the main one, so if it's a family member or maybe even a friend as well, I think it's about not trying to fix that individual. So for a lot of my childhood, um, when my parents found out that I was unwell, I must have been 16, 17. And they spent kind of six months whilst I was in camps trying to fix the whole situation, kind of watching my every move, following me around after mealtimes, sitting outside the bathroom. like, And it just got so frustrating, which meant that I felt really angry towards them and didn't want to talk to them about it. So I think it's about not always focusing on the food side of things and actually trying to talk to the individual about about their emotions and how they're feeling and maybe if they have a meal find out how that made them feel generally I think there's also something around trying to make people get like their love of life back so with me I became so wrapped up in the anorexia that nothing made me happy like I was just so fixated on listening to that voice in my head calorie counting exercising all the time and I didn't think there was any point to life apart from that and my mum just before I went into hospital we used to go for like these 45 minute walks a couple of times a week. And we had this rule where you couldn't talk about calories or exercise or hospital admissions or anything. And it made me actually realize that I could be happy at certain points. And it helped me to feel like actually I would be able to go back to that place eventually. Um, and I think there is something around being having those direct conversations with someone whilst trying to be really patient. And I think there is a time and a place for those direct conversations. And I always say, if you're really worried about someone and their relationship with food, you need to try and have that conversation with them before it's too late because the sooner we get in there, the sooner we can stop it. But actually, if that person shuts down and doesn't want to talk to you, it's about being patient and coming back kind of six, seven weeks later and telling them that you're still really worried about them. What can you do to help them? What's going on? And trying to get to the bottom of it that way as well. I also think in recovery, a huge part of my recovery has been about exercise and using exercise in the right way to manage my eating and manage my day to day. And I think quite often people with eating disorders and particularly parents and friends of people are so scared when they see that individual exercising again. So I think it's about actually learning what works for the person who's struggling. And if they do want to exercise, it's about investing maybe in a personal trainer or working with that individual to actually think they can do this. This is how we can support them to do that. Because if they do do that, maybe they'll have that more long-term recovery. Mm. It must be hard. I can see because if you were a parent or very 
close friends and you are really worried about someone, you'd maybe have a meal with someone and you will be sort of thinking, oh, you know, should I say something or are they eating enough? Or again, with the gym thing, you know, if they're worried yeah. that they've been um, compulsively exercising or, you know, really overdoing it and then they sort of join a gym again, they might instantly sort of think, oh, do I need to do something? But it's being about being supportive. Yeah, and I think it is about building that level of trust back. So when I was really unwell, the gym that I went to, my mum had this agreement with them that they'd ring my mum if I went to the gym. And like, God, it was so, it was really annoying. It was also really embarrassing having like my mum turn up when I'm like 17 years old. There's probably loads of like hot guys working out. And there's me like obviously really unwell, but it didn't, I didn't care. And it was like, then she'd turn up and pick me up and I'd be like, oh my God, this is so humiliating. And it meant that actually instead of having that time to openly exercise, I just became really serious secretive about it and shut everyone down and didn't want to kind of be part of anything with my mum because of that whereas I think now it's like we talk very openly about my exercise and making sure I'm doing it in the right way so I recently um cycled across the UK actually and um when I did it my mum had to keep like she checked in with every now and again to make sure that I was fueling myself in the right way but I was in that place then where I actually wanted that support and needed it off her but I think yeah it kind of depends on I guess where the individual's at Mm, it's like reading them a bit and seeing yeah your mum sounds great also (laughs) (laughs) you mentioned um that you were in hospital for a bit what was kind of formal treatment like for you? What did you go through to get into recovery? Um, so I spent six months as an outpatient at CAMS and would have every Tuesday I went and had um, a weight, my weight done, my blood's done and then did therapy. Mm-hmm. I didn't really engage with it at all. I still at that point didn't think there was anything the matter with me. So I pretty much sat through every therapy session being like, I'm fine, life's fine, everything's fine um, and didn't engage with it at all. And then um, when I eventually went into hospital, um, the therapy was, we did a lot of one-to-one therapy. We did a lot of group therapy. And then the big things that really helped me, I think the three big things actually. So the first one was on the Friday night after I'd been in hospital for about three days, I was like completely fed up. And I pretty much spent three days lying in bed or being told that I needed to eat food. And it was just really frustrating. And one of the nurses came in to see me. And she got me to draw how I imagined myself on this massive piece of brown paper. She then got me to lie down on that same piece of paper and she traced around me. And then she got me to stand up and look down at that piece of paper. And it was just ridiculous. Like the image was so different. And I had this realisation that evening that the way that I viewed myself was wrong. And maybe there was something wrong with my brain and maybe I should just give this a go. So I think that was a massive turning point for me. It made me kind of helped encourage me to start eating again. Were you seeing yourself as a lot bigger? Yeah, I was. It that's was fascinating. Yeah, it was ridiculous. And it's that's that's what I find really frustrating with yeah. anorexia is it does that to your head. Like it completely distorts Did you everything. Have any idea or were you like genuinely shocked when you saw I was genuinely shocked. That's so interesting. Because I pretty much lived in like tracksuit bottoms for like two years and hoodies. Yeah. So I didn't have the right clothes on or anything. Um yeah, I didn't realise. It's it's weird what it does to your head. <laughs> and then also we did this whole thing around motivation. So um, when you have anorexia, you think that you're completely invincible and you think that everything can just carry on and it will be perfect. But I had this realisation that actually my life was going to be on hold until I tackled all of this stuff. And a lot of people do function with eating disorders for a really long time. But you do get to that point where you have to tackle it or you're not actually going to be that happy. 
So I had to think about why I wanted to get well. And for me, it was like traveling, getting a job. Um, and the big thing that does help me stay well even now is that I really want to have children one day. And actually, if I don't manage my recovery and manage my eating, none of that stuff's ever going to be possible. Um, and then I think the third thing, obviously the therapy was amazing, but the main bit of therapy that I really liked was after every single meal, we used to go into this room with like all of the eating disorder patients and we'd talk about the food and it sounds a bit weird, but like... It does sound strange. <laughs> well, I say I'm like, God, it's such an odd thing to do. Um, but like it meant that you could eat the meal and then like get really stressed about it in your head and then go into a room and be like, I'm not okay with this. Like it's really rubbish. But you didn't have to show your emotions through the meal time, if that makes sense. That makes sense. So it would be kind of just venting. That yeah. That made you feel. And like, also we did a lot of venting at each other in it. So there was this one girl I was in hospital with who just used to like leave like one crumb on her plate every meal time. And it just used to like wind everyone else up. And like, it was probably like not even a calorie, but it was like, oh my God, like, why are you doing this? So it gave the chance in this group to kind of get annoyed at each other and have that space to do it in a supportive way. Yeah, it sound it does sound weird, but also like genuinely quite helpful. Yeah, I wasn't when you said it initially. I was like, talk about the ingredients or like how good it tasted. Like that puzzled me. Would you say you're recovered now or in recovery now? So I think I managed my recovery. Yeah, yeah. so probably in recovery. I thought when I got back from traveling that I was like fixed completely because I'd had like this year away where I hadn't had the need to exercise. Like I hadn't stressed about food, mainly because I had no idea what was in anything that I was eating, which I think was really healthy for me. Um, but then after I relapsed, I then I think since then it has been like a management thing. And I know what I need to do to stay well. I know that I don't want to live with this thing kind of dominating my life. And a huge part of my recovery now is about trying to challenge myself every day with food. So I go out, like when I go out for dinner, I don't just pick a salad off the menu. Or if I see like a piece of cake in a cafe when I'm sitting having coffee, I'm like, oh, I could go and get that for myself if I want it. So I'm trying to be a bit more challenging and actually make sure that the anorexia doesn't start making me like restrict and kind of look so inwardly on my life, if that makes sense. That makes sense. And the reason I ask is because I think a lot of what people define as like recovery is to do with weight and meeting a certain yeah limit so I'm, I just wonder what recovery actually looks like or how it's defined yeah and I think for people it is different things so I think mm. for me it's about being able to go out for dinner last minute and order what I want to have it's about learning to listen to my body so trying to accept the fact that yes I do get hungry sometimes and when I do I need to have something that actually I want to have not just have like an apple or something ridiculous and I think also something around for me the exercise thing so actually doing exercise because I enjoy doing it not because I feel like I have to do it all the time but I think it does it's a weird one with recovery because you hit that proper way like the way you should be and then like you plateau for a little bit a lot of people do and then you go a little bit more not in your weight but just generally in recovery and then mm. you plateau a little bit more then you might take a bit of a dip but there's a lot of people who I think are just at that plateau level at the exact healthy weight they need to be just functioning probably calorie counting and not really living their life as they could do and I think for some people they're happy like that which is totally fine but I think for me it's like I don't want like I don't know I don't want that voice to stop me doing things that I want to do or stop me having a glass of wine if I want it or something like that I think it's just with your campaign that's what I would be kind of concerned about if people are told okay you're recovered you've met this healthy weight but there still might be all the other stuff going on because it's not as simple as what someone weighs or no. what their body looks like yeah um so yeah I just want, want to, what do you think like how should we be measuring that how can you make sure that people aren't 
you know, at a physically healthy weight, but still mentally very unhealthy? So I think it's about asking all the right questions. So getting to the bottom of the emotional stuff Mm. and maybe actually trying to get, trying to understand, I don't know whether they do it through questionnaires or however they would do it, but actually getting people to understand about your eating. So what I always say is if you're struggling with food, you know that it's a problem when it stops you doing stuff you want to do. So it stops you going out in the evenings, it stops you choosing certain stuff on a menu, all of that sort of stuff. And actually those are all red flags to say that someone is still struggling or someone has just started struggling. Mm. So I think it is about, yes, we have to think about the weight because actually someone could be very, very unwell and kind of having problems with their body. But actually you need to get to the bottom cause of it. And actually I think what we need to focus more on is that emotional state of the individual and asking those questions mentally about how they're feeling or how they might have felt about a certain meal time and that's what I'd say when I work with doctors and stuff I'm like you need to try and get to the root of it and do that emotional questioning instead of just constantly being like have you had this to eat like how much do you weigh and all of that sort of stuff and but it is really difficult and actually yeah it's just frustrating and I found out yesterday actually randomly that when you go to the doctor for other things actually they do always weigh you don't oh, they yeah. um, and they've just introduced this whole new thing about when you take contraceptive tablets they have to weigh you now and actually it's all of that sort of stuff that is so difficult for people with eating disorders because you get weighed at every single opportunity at the doctors and you don't actually want to mm-hmm. and mentally it makes it so much harder to do anything properly and I think if you're still struggling with all of that stuff, then actually you need to get extra support. Mm. I know a lot of people who will get away to the doctor for whatever reason, for contraceptive pill, et cetera. And they'll say, just don't tell me or like let me yeah. face away. And the doctor will still tell them. God, which is just, It's just bizarre, isn't it? Imagine, it's just so strange. What would be your sort of top three things that GPs could do mm. to improve? Because let's face it, I mean, GPs don't even... even well, they don't have an easy job any day of the week, but at the moment, you know, they're totally sort of stretched. And when you go to the GP, you're only having like 10 minutes initially. So yeah, what three things should they be doing? So I think get asking how someone's feeling generally. Um, so when you go to the GP, if you've had a history of a mental health problem, whether it's an eating disorder or what it might be, actually checking in with that individual to see how they're doing on a day-to-day basis and realizing that, yes, they might have come in with a physical health issue, but actually they need to have their mental health checked. I think it's about GPs knowing where to signpost people to. So a huge issue at the moment is funding, as we know, but there are a lot of organisations out there who can offer that support, whether it's online or whether it's face-to-face stuff. So I think it's about GPs being able to signpost to the right places. And then I think that whole thing generally about the weight stuff, so actually working with the individual, if they don't want to get weighed, actually working out what you can do about that. And if you do have to weigh someone to see if they're able to go and be referred to mental health services, actually knowing that you can't say to someone, oh, you're not underweight enough for this, but actually whether it's about them trying to think of another reason or whatever it might be, which I know you don't want to lie to someone, but actually if it's that kind of detrimental impact, I think as well, one more thing, sorry, I know that's not for, um, but it is that whole thing around that person-centered care stuff, actually. So when I relapsed, my GP, I went to the GP, I went to the mental health trust and I went back to my GP when I went on medication and my GP was like, what would be helpful? And we came up with this agreement that actually, because I had to put back on weight and I felt really guilty about doing it, she would weigh me every three, four weeks And I don't think she ever wrote the weights down and I don't mind that, but actually it was nice because I had someone that I felt accountable to. And I think it's those sort of stuff that actually take two minutes for a GP to do. And if they thought a little bit more about all of those other steps that were in place, it would then prevent someone else in the long term ending up in hospital or stop someone ending up back in that GP all the time. So one of the things we were talking about with Hope was recovery. And the idea that you're not recovered and fixed 
but you're always going to be kind of in process of recovery. Yeah, absolutely. I think this comes up a lot with mental health stuff, doesn't it? Because, and I can see with eating disorders, it, people might suddenly think, you know, they've, they've got better, they're out of hospital, they're looking, you know, a slightly different way. Um, so they're recovered. But actually, mental health stuff can come and go and you can deal with it sometimes your whole life or sometimes you can recover. Um, yeah, so the whole like, concept is quite important to talk about, I think, because, I mean, again, with things like depression, people think, oh, yeah, someone had time off work with depression. Now they're back at work. Now they're fine. Mm. But, you know, that's not necessarily the case. Sometimes it might be the case for some people, but for other people, it will be a, something that they will have to kind of keep an eye on for a while. I think also it's important to be honest about it, because I remember when so when I started going to therapy, they were like, what do you want to get out of it? And I was like, to stop having obsessive thoughts to be fixed and she was like no <laughs> like you can't do that I can't say you will never have obsessive thoughts again or you will never feel depressed again mm. that is impossible and that's quite a kind of scary concept where it's like oh there's no magical fix but what you can learn is that okay you might not be able to just click a switch and you're done but it will get better mm. and you can continue to work and you'll go through periods where you feel great and everything's fine and then possibly have a dip or a relapse. Yeah. And that's normal and it's fine. doesn't Definitely. mean you failed. In terms of bipolar disorder, I mean, I have the daily reminder that I have it because I'm taking my pills every day. Mm. So I can't very well forget it. But at the same time, you know, for quite a while, things have been fairly steady. Sometimes, you know, I have bits of depression or sometimes I do have bits of sort of hypermania, even though I'm on the meds. So I do still have to kind of keep an eye on it. But um, yeah, I think it's, like you say, it's the process of getting better and, and also it's the process of learning more about yourself and about the condition that you're dealing with. Mm. Um, yeah, it's a long-term process, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's not like a defined end point. Like, okay, I've done the therapy, done the pills, I'm done now. Mm. Like, I can just, it's a long process. Yeah. And that doesn't have to be a miserable thing as like no. damning as it sounds well no I think it makes you very sort of generally just more aware and I think in some ways now I'm a bit older I kind of look back and I suppose it's still like the time I do sort of feel like I've got more understanding generally of people and if you'd said to me at the time you know when I was in um, young person's sort of mental health unit if I'd ever look back at that and see anything positive from it I would never have said to you at the time mm. there's anything good in that but actually now I'm I can see sort of it was good in a way because it opened my eyes to sort of certain things. I think it made me a lot more um, empathetic. Um, I think it put things in perspective generally. So um, without getting too philosophical, like things to do with work, sometimes I think, well, you know, things might not be going well, but, you know, I'm in a healthy place. I'm not in a unit or something. Or mm. So it's, yeah, it gives you a different kind of perspective on things sometimes. Mm. Also, I think everyone is a work in progress yeah definitely you know like nobody's got it completely sorted yeah. out that's what everybody has to just remember all the time like nobody's yeah. completely got everything and even so with anything it's not like you're like okay i've done my job and i've completed it mm. completed it mate yeah it's done <laughs> everyone's got one point in that thing in their life that is not going perfectly like yeah. even celebrities like they might look perfect but there's something everyone's it's, got it's something it's a process yeah. as like hippie-ish as that sounds <laughs> it is <laughs> Mentally yours. 
Thanks so much to Hope Virgo. If you've been affected by any of the issues we've discussed today, please contact the Samaritans on 116-123 or go to their website at samaritans.org. If you've enjoyed this podcast, come and chat to us on Twitter. We're on Mentally Yours, which is at MentallyYRS. You can also chat to us on Facebook. We have a lovely, friendly Facebook group. Just look for the Mentally Yours group. Thanks very much to our producer, Sam Bonham, to Lucy Baker for the jingles, and to Hope Virgo for chatting with us today. See See you next week. week. That's perfect unison. (laughs) I love it. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.